You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. My name is Jackie. I uh, have been a part of Free City Church for like seven or eight years now. And um, I lead, help lead the Topeka City Group with my husband and our friend Ashley. And um, I also serve up here at worship. So um, I am going to be reading from Psalm 56 in the paper Bibles. It's on page 446 under your seat. Um, So Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. Further crime will they escape. In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Um, This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Jesus, thank you just that we get to gather together and learn more about you and um, draw closer to you as a body. Um, Yeah, I pray that we would just not take for granted being able to come together and worship you. Um, and just get little tastes of heaven, of what it's going to be like. Um, I pray that this summer we would find sweet ways to serve uh, the middle school here and the teachers, and um, that as we praise you, that it would just leave behind an aroma of your goodness and your grace, and that people who walk in this building would want to know you deeper. Um, God, I pray this Father's Day that no matter where, what kind of fathers people had, or if they're here, if they're not, um, that we would get to celebrate you as our good father and um, that we would celebrate just the earthly fathers you've given us as well. So we thank you for today and just pray that um, the sermon would just penetrate our hearts and that we would leave knowing you better and also just being convicted of sin and that it would draw us closer to you, that we would um, just know your love for us even more. We love you, Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Ethan, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to be with you on this day. Uh, as has been said a few times, happy Father's Day. That, that does deserve uh, a celebration. You absolutely can celebrate. I know um, we always kind of hold this up. On Mother's Day, there was a little bit of holdup, uh, but dads are so important. Um, when we think about that, uh, as we always say on any holiday, this might be your nudge to uh, hit up your dad today and uh, shoot him a text or something like that or give him a phone call, whatever that may be, um, if you had forgot that that is today. But 
Um, Father's Day, you know, as we think about um, any kind of holiday like this, uh, it's an occasion for me um, that's changed over the years. And here's what I mean. Probably some of you in this room can relate. Uh, I grew up celebrating my father. Um, he's the man who raised me with my mom. Uh, he loves Jesus. He leads our family relentlessly and loves his church family and serves regularly. He spiritually fathers many. He works hard vocationally, and I've watched him just uh, create and uh, work with his hands hard as well. Um, he's really simple to celebrate. He uh, makes fathering for me to understand God as father. He made it really simple for me to understand God as father. That's my experience with my dad. And then I got married, and I inherited a father, a father who also loves his family relentlessly, cares for others with insane generosity, and has welcomed me in as his very own. He's yet another example of the ease for me to understand God as father. And then I am now a father. And uh, I'm so awestruck often by the men who have fathered me in my life, the two that I mentioned, but also the number of spiritual fathers in my life. How they've served as like uh, way pavers and hand holders in my life. And, and I constantly find myself uh, in a state of awareness that fatherhood is a precious gift not to be overlooked. It's from these men that I've received the taste of what it means to be a beloved child. And I strive and hope to portray that very thing to my own kids at this point in my life. But here's the other thing is as I grow older, if the Lord allows me days, I know that there will be a day associated with this day with pain. What I mean is there will be a Father's Day when my dad's, man, <laughs> when my dad's not there to answer the phone and uh, my father-in-law's not there to answer the phone. And uh, I know that there's a day when I won't be on the receiving end for my kids. And so fathers are so important. Fatherhood is not just simply some role derived of like sentimentality. It's a calling from God for the good of humanity. But the reality is that not everyone in this room, not everyone in the world has been a recipient of the same type of paternal care. As you hear the words this morning and throughout today, as you've maybe heard it within this week, Happy Father's Day, I realize it might not be a happy day for you. As is true with rec any recognition of a celebratory occasion, there are often people who come into this place, and, and this day is actually laced with like pain, fear, grief, and maybe loss or even anger. And one of the biggest reasons actually for pastoral care in our church is one due to daddy wounds. We have absent fathers. We have present yet abusive fathers. We have indifferent fathers or workaholic fathers and even like well-meaning fathers that have maybe potentially caused harm in lives of people gathered here. But here's the thing. Whatever fathering you've received in life, my hope is that this hallmark holiday of sorts might actually raise our ears, our eyes, our hearts to actually experience more of the wonder of God as Father. He's the framework for our understanding of fatherhood. And so he's the source. And my hope is that today if you find yourself pain, 
you would feel the love of God in the midst of your pain. That if you feel uh, celebrated as a father, that you would see that you have a good father who is the one to lead you in your fatherhood, and you would celebrate that as well. That we would know that as we gather here, Romans 8 is true for us, that the Spirit of God has made us sons of God because of Jesus, and God is our Father, and we received a spirit of adoption from God the Father as sons and daughters, and we can cry out to him at any moment, Abba, Father, and he hears us and he comforts us in our fears, in our pains, wherever we are. And so this morning, as you think about Father's Day, I hope that even as we look at today's text, you would know that none of your sorrows have been overlooked. None of your tears, as even this today's text says, have fallen to the ground without account, but God cares for you. And he has this Psalm 56, 8. He says he's kept a record of your tossing. He's bottled up your tears that your God is for you. But also, if you're a father, man, I hope that you would lean into your calling, the calling that God has put upon your life, that you would receive it with humility and you would lead your home as you yourself are led by your father, God. Let me pray for us this morning and we'll get to the text. Father, I do ask that as we are gathered here, um, that the dads that exist in this room, that you would bless them tremendously, that you would let us see more of the calling in our life where you've empowered us, you've gifted us, you call us and you lead us in fathering. Would there be uh, for all of us in this place, regardless of what type of fathering we've received, that we would be those who rest in your fatherly care this morning? That we would know that you are the God who is among us, who's in our midst, the mighty one who saves us, who rejoices over us with gladness, who quiets us by your love, who exalts over us in loud singing. You sing the praises of us because you love us. And so would we, would we be caught up knowing that we've not been forsaken, but we are yours because of Jesus? And would that move our hearts to worship this morning? Father, we thank you. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we are in Psalm 56 this morning, as was just read. Uh, in, in the summers, we usually, for the last handful of years, we've jumped into uh, the Psalms, and we've really uh, used it as, as a kind of a, a place to pull back in the summer, but we've also used it in between different things. Uh, we've joked in the last few weeks about different names for us. The latest I've heard was the summer psalmstice. That's pretty good. Ha, 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 ha. Okay. If you haven't been with us, then that lands nowhere, and I'll keep going. But here's what we're doing. As we're in the Psalms, um, we approach the Psalms just like we approach any other book of the Bible. We know from 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, what we really understand is the Word of God is, is breathed out by God. It's profitable for our life. It's authoritative for our life. But, but here's where we even zone in on Psalms this morning. In 2 Timothy 3.14, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, But for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you were acquainted with the sacred writings. You could just hear in there the Psalms, the Old Testament. This is, this is much of this. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. And so this morning, even as we look into Psalm 56, we're going to look that it is to help us understand more of who Jesus is, how he's cared for us. The Psalms make us wise. 
They instruct us. They lead us in life. They actually lead us to see that salvation is found in Christ and him alone. And so as we look at the Psalms throughout this summer, we'll, we'll see that they are really the hymn book of the church, a collection of prayers and poems that are meant to be instructive about God and, and man and life, the experiences that we experience. It's the one that helps lead us through the worst of times to give voice to the cry of our hearts and one that when we're on the mountaintop of joy, we're able to scream out praise and adoration for the God who leads us. They're designed to appeal to our intellect, our mind, the things we know, in a way that would delight and instruct our hearts. And so that's where we want to go this morning. Think of it as a words and music. When you hear music, you can hear a melody that just moves you on an emotional kind of roller coaster. And then you hear words coupled with it that bring direction and give an overall sense of purpose to the melody played. And that's how we want to think about this this morning. That as we dive into the Psalms, there would be a thinking and a feeling. It would engage our head and our hearts and move our hands to motion to follow the Lord. That sound thinking would kindle about deep feeling within us and deep feeling would motivate sound thinking. So maybe this morning you find yourself in a place of uh, you're highly emotional. Or maybe you are like one who cuts off your feelings. You're not really into the feels of life. However you might categorize yourself, this text is for you. So if we can this morning begin to connect the head and the heart, I think we'll become more whole people. We'll move from an intellectualism or simply an emotionalism, and we'll begin to see who God is, how he's for us. As today's text says, we'll join with the voice of David saying, this I know, God is for me. We would fix our eyes on Jesus. And this reality, this reality that God is for you will absolutely change you. So if you're like me, you need the Psalms to help you see your fears and worries. You might run past them. But here's the thing, we're out of touch so regularly with our fears, our anxieties. God's words of comfort, when we're out of touch with our fears and anxieties, tend to not strike very deep. So we want to lean into his word. We want to lean into that which we feel. We want to engage our fears and anxieties this morning because they have actually everything to do with God. And this is where we're headed today. In Psalm 56, David leads us, he clearly leads us to see this, that the antidote to fear is knowing that God is for you. That's the main idea today. The antidote to fear is knowing that God is for you. And we're going to break that down and look at two different, just sections of the text. And we're going to see uh, David, the, the cause for fear, why this exists in his life. And then we're going to see comfort in the midst of his fear. So we start by looking at the cause for fear. Let's look at Psalm 56. It starts with a heading. Above it, there's a superscript. If you see these smaller letters, and in your Bible, if you have it, um, there's actually uh, a little more that comes there. And so I want to unpack that just a little bit. The superscript helps us uh, understand the historical setting. Here's what it says. It says, To the choir master, according to the dove, on the far-off terebinth, a mictum of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So if, if you are looking at your Bible, or you're looking at one under the seat, 
I believe the ones under the seat don't have this, but if you have a cross-reference Bible, you probably have a couple letters in this superscript, in this kind of title of sorts. In essence, there's a few things that are happening, and we see it pretty clearly here. But if you probably have that kind of superscript and you've got uh, one tying you back to a reference, it probably references 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15, and 22, verse 1. And here's what this says. This gives us the setting for this text. 1 Samuel 21, 10. It says this. And David, he rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of, of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? That Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart, and he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate. And he let the spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David departed from there, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And he went with his brothers, and all his father's house heard it. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So the setting here is that David is on the run from Saul. But here's where things get pretty crazy. He's on the run from Saul, who's out to get him. He's out to take his life. But he goes to Gath. And here's what's kind of weird about this, pretty actually wild about this. Gath is the chief, is a chief city of the Philistines. It's in the southern border of Palestine, which sounds fine, all right, whatever, right? But more information on Gath is that it's also the hometown of the Philistines' champion, Goliath. And here's the thing. We're in Psalm, or 1 Samuel 21 here as we look back in this text. And just about four chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 17, David became the giant slayer, the champion slayer, if you will. He went toe-to-toe with Goliath, the giant. And he goes up to Goliath and he says, I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he defeated him with a sling and a stone. David then beheaded Goliath, chopped his head off with Goliath's own sword as a trophy. And now, four chapters later, decides to show up alone in that dude's hometown. Probably a bad call, right? Probably a bad call. Surely David's state is obvious to us. Who in their right mind would do such a thing? Like David, for fear of his life, he's on the run from Saul. His fear for Saul, though, has clouded his awareness of his actions. He's now placed himself in harm's way, entering the city of his enemy, an enemy that probably is still a bit upset from David's previous actions. And the story continues. He's worried for his life, and he does what any of us would do, right? He acts absolutely insane. He gets in the presence of the king, and he just turns into a madman, screaming, foaming at the mouth, letting his drool run down. It's like what my kids do when they're acting like animals. It's crazy. But it works, right? So King Akish there lets David go. He says, whoa, I don't need any more madmen. This is ridiculous. And David from there, 
He's free from his captors, and he flees to the cave of Adullam. He's escaped Gath unscathed, but he's still on the run from Saul. Alone and afraid, that's where this begins. Psalm 56, he prays to God. And notice even the note in, in the superscript of, of this text. It says, according to the dove on far-off terebinths. Terebinth is, is a tree. Like in your translation, if you have the New International Version, it might say uh, on, on oaks, on far-off oaks. Uh, this sets the tone for it. If you think <laughs> a dove far away from all of us, by itself, isolated on a lonely tree branch. We've got the tone. But here's what we see. We see the cause for fear. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 56. David writes this. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. So we've established the setting. And here, David cries out honestly to God. And notice the relentless nature of David's enemies. The repetition of all day long in verses 1 and 2 and in verse 5 that you heard as Jackie read. If you jump down to verse 5 and 6, you see all day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. They have waited for my life. This is an absolutely all-encompassing pursuit conspiring against David, utterly opposed to David. He experiences this in a physical way, but here in a voiced concern, we understand that it's more than just the imminent physical doom upon him. He's overwhelmed physically and spiritually. And have you ever felt this way? Like, have you ever been in David's shoes, like that kind of dove on a lonely, distant tree, I expect you've never had a king out for your life coming after you. I expect you've never murdered a giant and taken his head as a trophy. Or had to pretend to be a madman to escape your captors. But I bet you've been afraid. I bet that you've felt alone in your life, even experiencing these two things at a crossroads of sorts, feeling them both at once. Think about it. Loneliness. This is one of the most widely experienced things for humanity. Maybe a universal experience, the inevitable experience of humanity. I don't know to what degree you experience loneliness, but the thing is, your loneliness is a signal, a pointer to the reality that you were made for connection with others. For intimacy, for love, to be loved and to love, to give and receive The plan for your life is bigger than just some isolated version of you. Your loneliness points you to this end, to this reality. And then think about fear. Fear is, regardless of whether it's a mild uneasiness or or absolute widespread terror, fear has a simple message. Something you value is under threat. Something bad might happen to something or someone you care about, or in this case, it might happen to you. The future holds potential for loss. And because of this, and because fear is so common to us, your fears may be the single best wayfinder to understand what you actually value in your life. Your fears point directly to your treasure, whether health or wealth, perception from others, comfort, control of your lives, your children, your hopes, your dreams. Your fear is a signal. It gives voice 
and decodes your fear. So listen to your fears. And when you listen, they're, they're telling you something important about the shape of your hopes, your dreams, and most fundamentally, your worship. You see, examining your fear, it's, it's a chance to put to name your treasure. So do you find yourself afraid? And if not in this very moment, when you find yourself afraid, what do your fears communicate to you? What are they saying? Do you find yourself constantly ruminating on like, what ifs in life? What if this, what if that? What if it all spirals out of control? Maybe we regularly find ourselves there. But here's the thing. What ifs look to the future and they attempt to play God. They bring all the angst of possible doom while writing the very presence and help of God out of the picture. And this is not like some reality denial. David has absolute reason to be afraid. We clearly see the cause for his fear. But look at what David does in his fear. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says this. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? He says, when I'm afraid, when I'm tempted to trust in my own ability to secure my steps, when I'm tempted to look to others to save me, I put my trust in you. And notice the active nature of what David does. He says, I put my trust. It doesn't just naturally fall there. It doesn't flow into place. It's not indifferent or neutral. David places his trust in God, in God whose word he praises, in the God that he trusts in. And this is where everything begins to change for him. We readily understand David's cause for fear. He's got an enemy on his tail, lying in wait for his life, against him, opposed all the day long. We see this over and over, the repetition there. In every way, with every evil intent. But verses 3 and 4 have this kind of bookend of sorts, if you think about it. It's here that we begin to see not only the cause for David's fear, but the comfort in the midst of his fear. Verse 3, it begins, it says, when I'm afraid. And verse 4 ends, it says, what can flesh do to me? But right before that, it says, I shall not be afraid. What's changed in that single verse? I think the deal is, David's engaged his fear. His attackers are active in pursuit of his life, but he's active in pursuit of his own heart to trust in God, to look to God's word, to remember God's faithfulness to his word. And here, David finds comfort in the midst of his fears. He says, I shall not be afraid. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? You know, throughout the scriptures, we see a command that says, so often, do not be afraid. It's one of the most frequent commands in all the Bible, but it's not really a command in the way that we might think of a command, like a demanding command. It's not like the, the words, do not be afraid, when we see them in the scriptures, it's not like, hey, just stop being afraid. That doesn't work, right? If you say that to your kids, they're probably going to get more afraid. <laughs> if you say that to your spouse, it's not going to work. You say it to your friends, just stop being afraid. It doesn't work out that way. Instead, 
do not be afraid when we come to this in the scriptures is actually more of a window into the heart of God, the nature of who he is. It's both a plea and a comfort, a promise from the Father who knows you, who loves you. It's a regular occurrence that we see this command of do not be afraid preceding a promise that God is with us, that God is for us. Joshua 1.9 is a great example of this. My kids uh, in school this past year, they've got a weekly verse that they learn, and there's a song, a tune tied to it, and the hearth in our home becomes the stage in which they press play on Apple TV, and then they're dancing and singing the song. And it depends on who you are if you come to our house. If you might get the show, you might not. It depends on how well they know you or just the state of their day. But Joshua 1.9, it's it, the song, I, I think, I believe it's like New King James Version. It might be NIV. I don't know what it is. It says, have I not commanded you, be strong and have good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, wherever you go. And this is absolutely what David is employing here. He's thought on God's faithfulness to his word, his promises. He's considerate, and he's letting this truth sink deep into his heart so much that he can say with verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. For what can flesh do to me? Because, it's almost as though he ties this on, because I know you're with me. And this is exactly what you need, because when you're afraid, you desperately need someone bigger than yourself in whom you can trust. When the enemy closes in, when you're powerless, when you're acutely aware of your helplessness, don't you need somewhere to place your trust? What's wonderful here is that David knows the God whom he calls upon. He knows God's mighty hand. He's experienced God's power to save. We mentioned this earlier. It's God who fought for him as David went up against Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Like, no one shows up to a sword fight against a giant with a sling and a few rocks. David has known God to be faithful, and he trusts in and calls upon God now. And notice even his language, how he contrasts God's power with David's fears and even man. He says, what can flesh do to me? And isn't this similar language of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8? In a very Davidic way, Paul writes in Romans 8, 31 through 39, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. So who's to condemn? Christ Jesus, he's the one who died. More than that, who was also raised, who's at the right hand of God and who's interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword or even being alone in a cave in a dolem? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are guarded, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. They're after us all day, lying in wait for our steps. But no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure, 
I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As David adopted the language of God's promises through his word, we have the fulfillment of God's promise in Jesus Christ. The one who sits at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us now. And it's because of Jesus that we can be comforted in our fears. It seems like fear and faith in Psalm 56 occupy David's mind at once. But this fear drives him to trust. It drives him to faith in God. David realizes and actually signals then to us that the antidote to fear is knowing that God is for you. We must be reminded of this. And we actually must remind ourselves of this and one another of this. If we are to ever move from, from fear to faith, we must see God as he is, that he's stronger and more present than any of our troubles. Like We're God's kids if you trust in Jesus. We either run to him or from him. Those are really the only two possibilities. Even when we feel afraid, when we're on the fence trusting God a little and trusting ourselves a little, we can feel like we're going, we're kind of just stuck in the middle and we're neither going away or toward him. But a closer look at faith reveals that in our indecision, we've already made a decision. We've decided to turn from him and put our trust in ourselves and not toward him, not in him, in something else or ourselves. And so the question is, are you trusting God with your life? Or are you driven by fear? And how would you know? The thing is, you can't walk this out on your own, trusting in God. You've got to engage your fears, which means you may need to slow down and consider what's going on in your life. But you also need to then give voice to it. David confesses his fears. And I think further as though there is a, a dove on a far-off tree. That's the state of this. We, we are not to walk this out in that way. We confess it to God. We have him with us. But, but we need to do this in the gathering of the people of God, to speak this, that God is for us, back to us. This is a huge reason here at Free City we have city groups and life transformation groups. We want you to walk through life with others who readily point you to the God who is for you. And so really in one simple application of this text, it would be to ask your friends, who are those in the family of God that you come around and, and to just say, man, where am I driven by fear? Or maybe if you're aware of it, you would just voice it to your friends and, and you would take that time and hear them, give time for them to ground in the word of God to speak back to you how God is for you, to uproot your fears, rooted in Jesus and how he's proven in himself that God is for us. And then also, like when we think about doing that among each other, we've got to spend time together. Like how can you cultivate intimacy with people that you don't spend time with? You lean into relationships and also we can cultivate this even with God through prayer. We depend on him with all our life. We've got to be around the people of God who would encourage us into the heart of God. But then think about this. As we pursue one another, we 
pursue the Lord in prayer, we say, I will trust in you. We need to contrast us and our need with who God is. God does not stop his pursuit of you. We must not overlook this. Notice, as you see in the text, the intimate knowledge that David's adversaries have for him. They trample him. They attack him all day long. They consider him. They watch his steps. They lurk, and they wait for his life. But contrast that with verse 8, where it says this, You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This is one of the, my favorite verses in all the scriptures, speaking of the reality of God with us. And just consider this. As David's enemies lie in wait, God has kept a record of David's restless nights. The father's eyes fixed upon him. And, and think about the imagery here. David's tears come down his cheeks. Catch your, they've been placed into a bottle. How close must someone be to you to catch your tears in a container? The reason for hope, the reason for faith in the midst of David's fear lies in God's divine nature and promise to defend his own. The record-keeping and tear collection serve as assurance for David that God is for him. And Jesus actually echoes this in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Speaking of God's sovereign care. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He knows you intimately. Fear not. There's the command. Do not be afraid. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. Do you catch the record-keeping and, and promise of assurance that even Jesus gives here? He's saying God intimately cares for you. He's made you and he values you. And Jesus lifts the eyes of those gathered under his voice to see beyond their circumstances. And he does the same for us. He draws our eyes to eternity to comfort us in our fear. He says, trust in me. Listen to me. Look to me. Because of me, God is for you. Let that reality dispel your fear and lead your life. David leads us to this truth. And Jesus in Matthew 10 leads us to this truth. And here's the thing. The antidote to fear is knowing that God is for you. Look again at verse 9. He says, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. And he says this again, This I know that God is for me. David is confident that his cries are answered by God. He's again comforted by God's promise. This I know that God is for me. Just as David clings to God, God's promise, Paul says of those who are in Christ, as we read Romans eight thirty one, If God is for us, then who can be against us? You see, Jesus' work is the foundation of our faith. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ and what he's done to forgive sin, to defeat death and hell, and to restore us to the life that we were made to live together. So if God, through Christ, has saved you from sin, death, and hell, and the devil, then in what circumstances would he not save you? And in what circumstances could you not trust him? 
If this is true, then how do we respond to that reality? David here revisits the refrain as he closes out Psalm 56. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid, for what can man do to me? David, having previously considered the cause for his fears, he's now considered the comfort in the midst of his fears. And throughout the psalm, we see a movement from fear to faith within David. But the foundation on which this change takes place is the unchanging reality of God himself. It's in realizing that God is for him that he moves from fear to faith. But it's not just a movement from fear to faith. What we see in David is a movement forth into faith and then a response in worship. Look at verse 12 and 13. He then says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Notice the resurrection hope placed in here. We were talking about circumstances, being trampled, attacked, injured, but now David speaks with surety of God's preservation for his own. He says, you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before the God, before God in the light of life. Recall Matthew 10 again for a second, where Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. And then he says that with this promise, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. What is verse 32 of Matthew 10 but a preservation of a soul from death to walk in the light of life? You see, you can trust God in the midst of your fears because Jesus has taken on sin and death on your behalf. Jesus is the antidote to fear. He's the one who proclaims in John 8, 12, where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, the, the same God that David trusts in saying that you've delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. The same God that's for David is for you. And he's proven his faithfulness to you through being faithful to his word as he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. And it's because of him that we can now confidently consider our fears knowing that he comforts us in our fears. And Jesus, he moves us from fear to faith as we cling to his words, as we cling to him. And this promise is not only good for now, but for eternity. Consider Revelation 21. John writes, and I saw no temple in the city, which would sound like a problem no gathering place for the people of God. But it's this. For its temple is God, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Not only God for us, God with us. And this city, it has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
and by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by the day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, and nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And isn't this the assurance of God's record-keeping? Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Because of Jesus, our feet are kept from falling. And because of Jesus, we will eternally walk in the light of life. The antidote to fear is knowing that God is for you. And this is what we celebrate every week when we come to communion. We actually use the meal of communion to serve as a reminder, us meditating on God's faithfulness to us, his faithfulness to his word, recounting that he's delivered us from our enemies, from sin, Satan, and death, and he gives us the light of life, Jesus, to lead us in this life, to be with us in this life. And so we come this morning to communion to celebrate what God has done, knowing that he is the antidote to fear. This morning, if you're with us and you know Jesus as Savior, if you realize that he's purchased you and he's taken you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the light of life, we encourage you to come to the table as we come forward. A free city, the way we do communion is we have two glasses. One is a stoneware, and in the stoneware is wine, and in the glass, in the clear glass, is grape juice. What will happen is you come down for communion, we'll tear off a piece of bread, and, and it will be handed to you, and you'll dip it in either the stoneware or the glass, um, depending on your preference. There's also an option for a, a pre-wrapped cellophane, uh, gluten-free cup, and, uh, and wafer at the back, out at the info table, if you, if you choose to take communion that way. But what we do this morning is we come forth celebrating the God that is for us, that has made known, he's made himself known to us through Jesus. And we recount that we were a people who were once dead. We we're a people who now live in Christ and have nothing to fear because of him. So as we sing, come this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning as we gather at communion, I ask that you would move in this place, that you would take our fears, you would settle them in yourself, that we would see who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, that even maybe we would just begin to be a people who engage our fears. If we come into this place and we just kind of bulldoze our way through life, would you give us a moment of feeling? Not to leave us there, but to let us feel our way to understand where we have need and then that you would perfectly meet that need by your Holy Spirit. So move in us this morning, Lord, would you have your way as we take communion, we celebrate Jesus, we thank you for him, amen.